Hello, this is a podcast from SCC English, the English department of St. Columbus College, Dublin in Ireland. It's our blog at sccenglish.ie. Welcome to the SCC English podcast number five. This is Julian Gurdon from St. Columbus College in Dublin. And today, the 30th of April, 2009, I am talking to a, an old friend, a long-time supporter of us here at St. Columbus in the English department, Professor Terry Dolan, and who worked in UCD until his retirement about a year ago. So Terry, uh, thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed. Pleasure, Julian. And we're going to be talking today about Geoffrey Chaucer, perhaps the first great poet of English. But first of all, a little lead-in. Um, Terry, could you tell us about your own areas of research and writing in your academic career? My own areas of research, Julian, were mainly in medieval English. So it took in writers like Chaucer that we're going to be talking about today. It also took in the history of English language too. And also too, later on in my career, I switched over to something called Hiberno-English, which is the use of the English language in Ireland. Then I began working on a dictionary some years back, which was published, called A Dictionary of Hiberno-English. So that's my current work, trying to finish off a new edition of this dictionary of Hiberno-English. So my main areas, therefore, would be medieval, linguistic and lexicographical. That's pretty formidable. <laughs> um, I know that also our link on our blog, SCC English IE, goes to your website, the Hiberno English website, which is, is kept current, I know, by one of your colleagues, assistants. By, that's right, by John Loftus, who's originally from County Mayo. That's right, and well, it's well worth looking at. Excellent uh, website. Um, you will be known, and you're, if uh, anyone has tuned into our podcast um, just accidentally, as it were, they will recognize Terry's voice because you've done a lot of broadcasting, and specifically with Sean Moncrief on News Talk on Monday afternoons. And for him, you talk about? I talk about words of current usage, and so I choose a topic, and then listeners uh, t email in questions for me to answer about the origins of words, where they came from, such as Recently we did education, so I had to talk about the origins of the word education and the words examination and words like that too, and student and pupil, and school and gymnasium. So words connected with a theme is how we do it. So Sean puts question to me and I'm asked to give the origins of these words. That's, That's right. Words. And I think uh, not so long ago you were talking about the American presidential elections, weren't you, in, in before Christmas? Um, uh, tonight you're coming to college, to St. Columbus, to talk about American English. I am. And um, you've been visiting St. Columbus for many, many years. Could you tell us about your, your visits over the years? Well, I came to Dublin first, to UCD first in 1970 to teach. I came straight from Oxford. And there, uh, in UCD, I began teaching a marvellous group of people one of whom is one of my very dearest friends from St. Columbus, called John Fannigan. And he stood out in the whole galaxy of stars that I was teaching at the time. <laughs> you love hearing that. A star in the galaxy, yes. yes. So over the years, you visited our pupils and have talked to them and lectured them about what kind of topics? Well, I've spoken a lot of stuff about the history of the English language and slang. And Columbus is dip deeply interested, too, in varieties of English. So... I was able, when I was compiling the first dictionary of Hiberno English, to incorporate quite a lot of words used by St. Columbus people. Yes, I know that they really enjoy your uh, your visits when they can ask you questions about where words came from and 
um, how they operate in different parts of the world. So this evening we, we will have another of these talks, very much looked forward to by, by our pupils. Well, I'm looking forward to, to doing it, because tonight I'm going to talk about African-American English too, and Yiddish as well. Yes, excellent. Yeah. So let, let's move on now to the subject of today's talk, which is the poet Geoffrey Chaucer. And I'd just like to say here that part of the reason for this discussion is that I think uh, Chaucer really needs a bit of a push in the education system. He has pretty well dropped off any kind of syllabus. So until the new Leaving Certificate course started, he was in Gus Martin's famous book, Soundings. Now, only a small bit, the, the beginning of the prologue. Of the general prologue, yes. That's right. But nevertheless, he was there. But uh, I think we can make a case for him now to be studied in schools and also to be read generally. Um, so that's the purpose of our, of our talk, a kind of, we're basically advocating the great poet, Geoffrey Chaucer. So, first of all, um, can I ask you about the nature of his language? He's usually called a Middle English writer, and could you explain for our listeners what Middle English means? Well, various types of English, depending on the time it was spoken, have a label. And so we have Old English, which was once called Anglo-Saxon, and that started in the 7th to 8th centuries. And that was used to about 1150. And after 1150, the English language developed itself into various other forms. And Middle English is therefore anything spoken or used in the English language between 1150 and about 1500. So Chaucer was born about 1340 and was murdered, so we think, in 1400. And so he is writing what is called Middle English. Excellent. Uh, I know that most people, generally speaking, if you ask them what Old English is, they, they think Shakespeare, which is definitely not the case. Shakespeare is very late, so how could someone born in 1564... Uh, be Middle English. That's far too late for us. Yes, exactly. I, I, I always say directly to pupils, to be or not to be, that is the question. Do you understand that? Yes. Which, of course, they do. It's definitely not Old they English. Yeah. But the interesting thing about Shakespeare, of course, is that he's actually written in a different dialect from Chaucer. So if you begin to read Chaucer, first of all, you find he makes much more sense to it, because technically Chaucer was writing in the dialects of the city of London. So Chaucer was a Londoner to start with. So that's why he's easier to make sense of than, than Shakespeare, who was a West Midland author, as you know, from the Birmingham area, Worcestershire. Yes. My pupils sometimes ask me, you know, how much would we understand? If we talked to Chaucer, if he walked into the room right now, how much would we understand what he was saying? Well, we would certainly understand all the ordinary words in English, as and, if, but, and words like that. But obviously some words um, were slightly different formation. So Chaucer would use the word call as eclept. If he used the word fowl, he'd mean not just a chicken, but he'd mean, he'd also would mean actually a, a, any kind of a bird. Right. Before we get on to the poet himself, can we just talk about the world of Chaucer? We're talking about you know, the late 1300s, early 1400s. It's a, a very, very different world than the one we live in now. So... What distinguished this world in particular? What was it like to live in England? It was an absolutely horrific, unhygienic world. And you know, Julia, now when we often see on the television horrendous pictures of very sad little villages collapsing in lack of hygiene in India and places like that, it's absolutely horrific times they were living in at the time. But also, it does have some similarities with Ireland in the 1950s when the church was so powerful. So the 14th century when church, Chaucer was living. He had a huge lot of trouble 
because we think eventually Chaucer was murdered because he fell out with the church at the end of his life because he's very critical of the behaviour of the clerics in his contemporary area. Yes, it's certainly a, a highly religious world and, and that's reflected in the, the, well obviously the story itself of pilgrimage, but the numbers of clergy or people related to the church on the pilgrimage itself. Yes, and I've done the pilgrimage myself to, from London to Canterbury many years ago. It's 55 miles from London and takes four days. You didn't have to go sort of walking along the motorways or anything, did I'm you? Not stage, no, there were no motorways <laughs> there then, but there were a few, few quite busy roads because we had to negotiate. But we did take, take the, an edition of the Canterbury Tales with us. And we authentically went into fields, so four of us together. We used to read tales to each other in the fields as we were walking from London to Canterbury. It was a wonderful experience for all of us. But we must remember too, though it wasn't our experience at the time, that many people used to go to Canterbury at the time because of um, health reasons. Because the doctors at the time were far more, far more um, casual about medical, med medical practice than they are now. But the actual way they used to carry out surgery then was so painful and so opportunistic and also unpredictable and very often useless that people would go to Canterbury just to pray at the tomb of St. Thomas Becket, who was buried in Canterbury. So they used to, if they had a sore arm, they'd rub it on the side of his tomb and hope the arm would get better without an operation. Or if they had a sore head, they'd try to um, get their head better without being drilled into as I was myself last year. Yes. Uh, and I had an operation after a stroke. Mm. And so they used to go to Canterbury very much so because it was one way to evade evading the pain and horrors of the medical system in the 14th century. Yes, we're, we're definitely lucky not to be alive then. We're very, very <laughs> lucky too. And our sense of hygiene too, too, because the 14th century was so smelly. And one very common way of dying was not through pneumonia or things like that, but very often they had very fine, very kind of casual lavatories at the time. So they had cesspits at the time, and quite often the smells in the cesspit would be so bad they would rot the wooden uh, planks over the cesspit. And if you went over to, as we say now, to do your business, quite often you'd fall into the, cess, the cesspit. And that was a very common way of dying at the time. So I think that was just beyond belief in terms of horrors and yeah. lack of hygiene. <laughs> what a way to go. Yes. What a way to go. <laughs> yes. we're, we're now all worried about swine flu, but um, it isn't really going to hit the world the way that uh, plague and disease and, stop, and, no. and so on did in Chaucer's Julia, time. Julia, that's a very good point too, because in Chaucer's life in 1349, they, of course, had the Black Death, which was carried around not by pigs, but by, by rat fleas, a flea called the Pulex Hirpis, that used to jump from rat to rat, and then from rat to man, or rat to woman, or and then lots... A third of Europe died in the 1340s, and the the, uh, the people at the time began to live in a very wild fashion. It was almost with the fear that was created by AIDS some years back, and people used to live um, in what they call Merry England. Merry England really wasn't funny England at all. It was an England in which people were so obsessed with the fact they might die tomorrow, they'd do absolutely anything. So as you know, life in San Francisco accelerated in a very decadent way after AIDS first came into San Francisco because if you're going to die off tomorrow you're certainly going to want to get the last great uh, decadent pieces of life together before you finally leave this, this planet. Exactly, yes. Um, the other thing about the world uh, of Chaucer that I'd like just to ask you about is 
um, another group uh, of people here, which is women, because women feature very strongly in Canterbury Tales and the stories about them. And it seems to me he's one of the great writers about women. We, we'll talk later on about the wife of Bath, perhaps. But what was women's life like for, uh, in, in Chaucer's time? Well, unless the woman was married or certainly had a man, a permanent man relationship at the time she was 12, her father would get very worried. And if by the time she was 15, she was, as, they, as we say now rather cruelly, she was on the shelf, her father would put her into a nunnery, so she'd be forced into becoming a novice prioress or something like that, as Chaucer writes about in the Canterbury Tales. So women didn't have the best of lives at all then. Yes, of course a great, a great portrait of the prioress, which we might come to later on. And if we could go to his life uh, generally, he led an extraordinarily rich, uh, vibrant, kind of interesting life, uh, which you have studied in, in great detail. Could you give us a, a sketch of the kind of uh, a life that this great poet had? Chaucer was born into a prosperous middle-class family in about 1340 and was a very serious high civil servant working in the, in the docks as the man in charge of the ports of land, London, right into the 1340s and 50s. And so he was enormously powerful at the time in relation to trade. And so he had a great um, relationship with the royal course at the time because he was in fact um, first of all employed by the a, a person who was an earl who was related to the royal family because at the time the king on the throne was Edward III who became king in 1327 and it was he who started the Hundred Years War and Chaucer was much involved in, in spying at the time much involved too in international trading and networking as we call it today and so he himself had a very rich life. It wasn't always a comfortable life, as it said about Chaucer, that he had a miserable life with his wife, Philippa. And that's why Chaucer sometimes is a bit critical of women in his stories, that women are shrill and difficult and always want domination. And so he can, in a very modern sense, be almost anti-feminist, right, which he, is very exciting to read about. Yes, exactly. Of course, he's not... No, enormously complimentary about a lot of men. <laughs> There's uh, no, no, a lot of awful true. men in, in, in the country. That's right. Yes. He, he finds men often get drink and belch and make all sorts of horrible noises and smells. That's right. So he's, he's, <laughs> he's viciously realistic about men who love to take too much drink. Exactly. As we say now, as you like to say, Julian. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and he, he very dramatically ended up in France and had to be basically bailed out and, and uh, having been captured in. In, as you say, many one of the, the long series of battles and wars in, of the time. He was, yes. And so the thing is, you see, that Edward III started the Hundred Years' War, because his father, Edward II, was regarded as a very weak, limp-wristed homosexual, and he died in 1327. So Chaucer himself was much involved in negotiation with the French during the Hundred Years' War. You alluded there at the beginning of that, saying his murder... Uh, in 1400, and you uh, assisted and were part of and collaborated with uh, your friend Terry Jones in a book, a uh, matter of five or six years ago, which was about this very matter. So uh, the book was um, Who Murdered Chaucer, a Medieval Mystery. So could you tell us how you got involved in in researching that particular, particular yes. thing? Yes, Chaucer is one of the favourite authors of the great Monty Python director, who directed the life of Brian, Terry Jones, with whom I've been friendly for many years now. And once he came to UCD and we had a chat together about 
how it is that Chaucer, who is so powerful, as we've just been saying, and yet seems just to disappear in the year 1400. So he decided to try to research exactly what happened, or might have happened to Chaucer, to cause his death, because there was no sign of Chaucer being ill at all in the late 1390s. In any way, there's no evidence whatever for that, because we do have something called the Chaucer Life Records, in which we can spot virtually everything that Chaucer had been doing in his professional life. No reference whatever to any impending illness or danger or anything like that. And just before uh, 1400, Chaucer was living in one of the houses next to Westminster Abbey now, where in fact he is buried. And that um, Chaucer took out a very long lease on the place he was living in, so he himself had, and that document still survived. So there's no evidence whatever that Chaucer himself had any view whatever that he was going to come to the end of his life in any short term. Right. Uh, Terry Jones, I know, uh, himself was the author of a book uh, about Chaucer's Knight, which we might discuss now that we're going to get into to the Canterbury Tales themselves. So, um, yes, the, the, the Canterbury Tales is, is really one of the great works of literature of all time, and if we're kind of lucky that during the medieval period in Middle English, there was this extraordinary poet writing incredibly freshly still 600 years later. So I we do a little bit of Chaucer in St. Columbus in transition year, and it, now reading in translation, of course, because it's difficult for for younger people to understand Middle English, but it's the voice is so fresh, all the, the descriptions, the tales are so vivid. It's it's a, an extraordinary compendium of people's lives. Um, and could you tell us the basic setup of it, the idea of, mentioned already, you know, desire to, to go to, Canterbury because of, of Thomas of Becket's tomb, but at the very beginning of the Canterbury Tales, there is this prologue which describes the various pilgrims. Yes, it describes the various pilgrims, of whom there are 29. So we go through all the pilgrims, including the knights that you mentioned, Terry Jones has written about. And Terry Jones was the first person ever to say that he had it all wrong about Chaucer's knight. It was always thought that Chaucer's knight was an ideal person and that he did everything that was very perfect, gentle, a very perfect, gentle knight, noble knight. And so we all had it wrong for decades and decades of Chaucerian scholarships. And so in the general prologue itself, we are introduced to this wonderful circus of very fascinating, interesting people, uh, boys and girls and women and nuns and friars and priests and the rest. Would you like to pick out perhaps one other... Pilgrim, a particularly vivid description at the beginning, uh, after the night. The night is the first one described, but um, any other particular ones that people should attend to? In my early life, I was educated by nuns, and I think one of the nuns was virtually the same as Chaucer writes about at the beginning of the Canterbury Tales, the prioress, a very haughty nun who had a very high opinion of herself and really never really had a vocation at all. She would much have preferred not to be a nun at all. As I said, one of the sad things about being a woman in the 14th century was that if she had not got married by the time she was 12 or 15, it's very likely that Chaucer's nun was a nun who was hand-drummed into a nunnery without wanting to be there at all. So you can understand why she was a difficult person. Yeah, so that description just burns off the page, isn't it? So it does, very, yes. very particular table manners and her, her, yes. her, her extraordinary treatment of her dog who, who is given food that is obviously denied to most of the population. Yes, because it was time of great poverty, no money at all, about lots of parts of the world at the moment. And so 
This nun there thought more of her dog than she thought about her fellow human beings exactly. and the rest. Mm -hmm. And I should say to, to people listening who are well, obviously may find Middle English difficult until you've studied it, that it's well worth reading those kind of descriptions that we've described or any of the tales in translation. Uh, the translation I use is the old famous one, 1951 translation by Neville Coghill in, in Penguin, but there are lots of other translations too. Many, many translations, but I would suggest, Julian, it's best to read a translation into English uh, iambic couplets. That is like the one by Neville Coghill, who in fact, as I mentioned to you some time back, is from remote Irish descent. He did the best of all translations in the Canterbury Tales, and his one in Penguin is the iconic translation. Yes, yeah. and grips the humour of Chaucer brilliantly, exactly. and the irony too. That's right. I mean, that's, we, we should say that Chaucer is an extraordinarily funny writer, and as you say, the liveliness of them, Coghill gets really, really well, and it's a, it's a work of literature in its own right, that translation. I it think. is, yes. no question at all, yes. So, we'll Coghill, move on to... So, sorry, go ahead. David. Sorry, Neville Coghill visited Dublin to see the tomb of his ancestor in Drumcondra in the late 1960s. Marmaduke Coghill is buried in the Church of Ireland Church in Drumcondra, near All Hallows, Priory. Oh, I hadn't known that. That's very interesting. Yes. Um, let's move on to the tales themselves. And, and Chaucer's great brilliance in this is the, the rubbing up of one pilgrim to another, totally different people, the variety of tales, the extraordinary change from, for instance, the knight's tale at the beginning to the miller who comes straight after and he's a bit drunk and tells a, a bawdy kind of pub tale. The extraordinary variety of these people that their tale suits their character. Um, later on, which tales in particular do you think someone new to Chaucer might look at first? I think certainly the wife of Bath tale would particularly uh, entrance women because she, Chaucer's wife of Bath, was in fact the first of all the feminists and she poses in her tale a question, what is it that women most desire? And the answer is domination and being boss. So I think The Wife of Bath Tale would be a wonderful tale for the new entrance to the Chaucer world to read. Yes, she's a, she's a great character, described brilliantly, and her prologue is brilliant too. The, it is, She's yes. been through quite a few husbands in her time. Well, she has. Well, she says, I, and then going back to the state of women at the time, as she rightly says, if you want uh, to get rich, what you do is you marry an old man, marry and wear him out in bed at night. <laughs> so he finally drops off the twig, as we say, with a heart attack. So that's what she used to do herself. She used to choose rich men. And finally, she chose a very young man as, as her, a young fellow, as her, as her final husband. And she and he did not get on at all. In fact, he hit her over the head and she went deaf because she was so difficult and contumelious with him. Mm. So. The idea was that, uh, I think, originally that these pilgrims are going to tell two tales on the way there and two back, but obviously he didn't complete that. But it's still, it's a substantial work of literature. And one of the great things about it is the connections between the tales. There are often little little intervals. The host who's, who's uh, in charge of the storytelling, as it were, has to intervene every now and then. There are some wonderful moments when one pilgrim rubs up against the other. I was reading, rereading uh, uh, yesterday the friar and the summoner who have a real go at each other in their tales and um, that it, the part of the delight in the Canterbury Tales is the, is the understanding that we are looking at very different characters and their interaction between each other not just their 
Okay. That is right. In fact, there's one wonderful book by a man called Benson about uh, a canopy called Chaucer's Drama of Tales. So there is, in fact, a drama, as you rightly say, Julian, between the characters, including the host, who's the pub, the owner of the pub where they set off from in London before they go to Canterbury in the first place. So it is a drama between the characters. So Chaucer would have been a very great dramatist, just like Shakespeare, as well as a poet as well, I've yes. no doubt. Yes, a great storytelling. Oh, superb, yes. yes. I was chuckling earlier, and, and being a public podcast here, I'm going to, have to be careful what I say. I'm going to just allude to the hilarious way the summoner gets back at the friar by telling him where friars end up in hell. It's not just in hell, it's in a particularly no. unpleasant part of hell. Exactly, yes. and it's that part of hell. And we were talking earlier about uh, hygiene and people falling into cesspits, so it would be that part of the human anatomy, yes. which is particularly involved with cesspits, where the, the friars should end up. Beautifully, the devil. beautifully put, Terry. And a note in which I think, ending up, we can probably conclude our, our discussion about Chaucer. I'd like to thank you very much for talking to us about Geoffrey Chaucer, and I hope we've persuaded people to go back to the poem. I hope so, too, because Julia Chaucer really is a star, and he gives you a lift when you read him, and you feel better for reading him, and you feel you've had a new look into human life of 600 years ago, and they were as risque and frisky as we are. Exactly. Professor Terry Dolan, thank you very much.